Okay, I'm going to let uh, the next moderator, uh, Todd Yuri, kind of uh, take it from here. That'll expedite things. So, Todd, take it away. Thank you. Todd Yuri, Pharmacy Podcast. This is exciting for me because I work with a gentleman out of Los Angeles who's known as the Clinical Trials Guru. He does a blog and a podcast, so look him up, Clinical Trials Guru. He gives us insights into clinical trials. So with the mass amounts of information, that is involved in the clinical trial research in collecting information from different parties and stakeholders. The reality is simple that blockchain will absolutely make sense in this. However, I want the panel here to introduce themselves first and then I have a myriad of questions to present to you. So we're going to start with uh, Walter at the end. I'm Walter De Brouwer. I'm the founder and the CEO of DocAI. It's a Palo Alto-based AI company that works on medical data. I'm Amar Das. I'm director at uh, an IBM Research of Learning Health Systems. And prior to that, I've been uh, working in clinical informatics at Dartmouth and Stanford. Hi, John Halapka. You've seen me multiple times today, but what you don't know is that I was also CIO of Harvard Clinical Research, Inc., the clinical trials organization of Harvard Medical School for many years. Hi, I'm Bhaskar Gumadi. Um, I'm part of Bayer Healthcare and I'm responsible for clinical trials at Bayer and one of my uh, innovation um, ideas over there was to kind of use blockchain for sharing data with the clinical trial patients. We just had a session about that, uh, so that's one of the topics that I'm interested. Okay, thank you gentlemen. So first of all, um, let's kind of set the stage and that is, let's start with a roadmap. So the first question is, what is the roadmap for an end-to-end -end digitized clinical trial? And I'm going to start with you, sir. So if you look at clinical trials as a whole, right, I mean, I am a firm believer in the concept of rather than throwing technology at a problem, try to understand the process itself and then use the right vehicles of technology where it, where it is needed. Do we need blockchain for a, for a single company sharing the data with the clinical trial patients? Probably not. So, you know, do we need AI? You know, where does it make sense to use AI or machine learning? Or even robotic process automation? There's a lot of things uh, that can be automated, but there are some exceptions that you want the humans to intervene. So I would start with understanding the business problem or the business process at first and say, where are the pieces that can be optimized? How can we reduce cost? How can we provide better service to the patients and make sure that the trials are efficient? So that I would look at the process from beginning to end and then look at the opportunities where technology can enable. That's my perspective. Sure. So my perspective on this, so not only am I a CIO and an IT applications provider, but we are the last hospital in America not to run Epic, Cerner, or other commercial certified electronic health record. We create it ourselves. So imagine this. We do uh, $200 million a year in NIH-sponsored research, and I get these letters saying, can you certify for 21 CFR Part 11 that there's total data integrity from end to end through every application you've built from 1977 to the present 
and like how do I answer that question mm -hmm. and so to me if there is a blockchain as a service if there is a utility some abstraction layer from my EHR that I can point to and say yes look at what I can do to guarantee data integrity that would be of great help to all of our clinical trials so I agree with the point first that we shouldn't just throw blockchain onto clinical trials and expect that it's going to cause, you know, save, cause all these problems to disappear and, and wait when we're clinical trials. There's a lot of issues that are organizational that have to be addressed. But there are certain areas within the way we run clinical trials, especially multi-site clinical trials, where trust and transparency of, of how we're doing the activities across multiple sites is uh, essential to ensuring that the quality and integrity of the data. So we uh, are looking at how we can build blockchains in the specific areas where we have multiple stakeholders in place, including the different sites, including a single IRB that has to overview all these sites and all the sources of data. Um, we have actually just put a paper out in IEEE blockchain in the uh, newsletter for September that talks about how to sort of build up this uh, process. Right now, one of the biggest challenges is that we're still, in, still uh, writing protocols on paper uh, in documents, and there's lots of the regulatory aspects that we need to extract out of that for blockchain into sort of the smart contract. So how can we automatically, automatically translate those rules into, into smart contracts that, that can be used on these multi-site uh, clinical trial blockchains? What was the question again, actually? Because uh, everyone seems to be answering another end, question. End-to-end <laughs> clinical trials. So what is the roadmap for an end-to-end -end digital um, clinical trial? Yeah, so we did a lot of our, our research actually on patient recruitment because now, um, and so we believe that the ingredients of that roadmap is of course, it, it has to be mobile. And uh, secondly, there has to be a lot of AI in and especially for the collection and the prediction. The third thing is there has to be a lot of education because we need to work with precision medicine, so with omics, so the patient has to be. But the, the most important thing is we have to be able to report back to the patient, to really give the patient some, or the participants something. And that creates some regulatory barriers, for instance. Uh, so if you want to do research only, you need an IRB, but if you want to report back, you also need clinical. So that means that you need a physician on record to prescribe. And in the States, we're still like 50 states like uh, the only doctor we found who was licensed in 27 states was a doctor of a symphonic orchestra, uh, you know, because they go from state to state. So that's, that's really, uh, you know, it's a very old and obsolete law, but if that falls away, it would be a lot better. So I believe these are the main ingredients, actually, of uh, the new way of looking at clinical trials and observational trials and discovery trials, where the patient is actually involved, because basically now, you know, and we, we interviewed together with IDO a lot of participants, and it's like, <laughs> so these people are promised uh, a, a journey to, you know, and it's like an airline experience. They're promised an, an airline experience to Paris. They go into a plane. Everyone hates them. They get lectured by the stewardess. There's no window to look out. And when they arrive in Paris, they can't get out of the plane. They take them back. And when they actually exit, then they are, they are told that they, they are going to keep their luggage you know that's basically the the, the participants you know you know uh, I think we have to review that uh, the, how the participant is, is respected in these trials and then we'll have a lot more participants because basically the whole of medicine is one big research project so and we need more and more people to get in there 
I mean, I kind of agree with you on totally, uh, especially in the pharma, with the background in pharma. What pharma is trying to do is that they want to put patient at the center of the clinical trials. They're saying patient-centric clinical trials. You know, of course, it's right now it's um, it's just this verbiage there, but you know, it's not getting to that actual patient-centric clinical trials. One of the challenges, for example, I can share with you. We wanted to share the data with the clinical trial patients. So it was an innovative idea and it was very well accepted. But then we also had to deal with the complexity of, if we share the data with the patient, the patient, we don't want the patient to know whether he's on a placebo or an active ingredient. Right. So what data? So then we involving the study, uh, study team as a part of you know, the decision factors as to say, at what stage do you want to share? At what stage do you, at what data do you want to share? So uh, that, it's different for interventional trials. Right. I mean, but if it is for an observational trial yeah. with one medication that everyone takes, uh, that, for that instance, I totally like agree. Yeah. performance-based reimbursement, study, yeah, yeah. then. Exactly. And I, and also I can feel the pain of the patient, right? The patient wants to, let's say the patient is suffering from uh, cancer and he has to be, uh, he has to go through biopsies. These biopsies are painful. Let's, let's say that you know patient is suffering from liver cancer. It's one, one of the most painful biopsies. He goes to a trial, and then he doesn't get sad, uh, qualified. And then he goes to another one, but he can't take the biopsy results with him because they say, you can't have it. And he has to go through this painful process over and over again until he gets I mean, uh, qualified for the trial. There's also something wrong with that. So there's, there's recently a book, Randomistas, actually a good book on randomized trials. There's something inherently wrong with the, f the fact how we do trials. And you know, this is from a mathematical point of view, which is very different from a statistical point of view. So we have to review the whole thing, I think, because you know, also the double-blind parts like, it doesn't work actually. Well, it's like, you know, the, the, the series on TV of The Bachelor, you never know who, right. where, where, you know, it kisses everyone, but what is the real kiss? <laughs> who wants to be in that? <laughs> right, I mean, some of the, I, I see like in some of the science behind the clinical trials, you know, you have to adapt to the changing environment. And FDA is actually willing to take more and more, you know, provided you can prove the benefit to risk ratio, they're actually willing to approve a particular drug, but then the onus is on the, on the company to kind of you know, prove the risk and the benefit ratio constantly by actually risk mitigation or a risk mitigation plan and you know, something like that. Yeah, because for rare diseases, which have to be very precise on the genomic part, so the, the, basically it should be N equals one, you know, like the, it should be the clinical trial of one where right. it switches off and on and right. he can do his own control group. There's many more things we can do. Like, but we have to revisit that trial. Right. I think we go, probably going off on a tangent, I think we, you know, but I think the topic was probably about technology. Yeah. So, uh, let back. I, I probably also answered another question. <laughs> I'm, I'm a participant in the crime too, so. So blockchain as a transmission of better in, uh, in evolution of how we're sharing information is one thing, but in clinical trials, let's talk about the tools. And I think of Alexa Voice, for example, someone coming up with a program to be interactive with the patient in their home, starting to have, based on timing, because you want to collect certain verifiable information, interaction with the patient. Dr. Uh, Emmanuel Fumbu wrote uh, Healthcare and AI. 
and he mentions some of this voice recognition in collecting data in clinical trials, which is kind of exciting. So based on that, the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, expand upon identifying potential areas where technologies like this will play into the advancement of clinical trials. Sure, well, I'm happy to start with that. So I have 30 Alexa skills already deployed <laughs> at my medical center. And what are our use cases? I mean, this is not exactly a blockchain thing, but the use cases are this. If any of you have ever been an inpatient, you know when you're sitting alone in that bed, the questions that come into your head are, when's lunch? When's my pain medicine coming? When am I getting out of this place? You know, when will my doctor see me? Oh, what was my last lab result? You know, stuff. And switch off the light. <laughs> right, and switch off the light, call a nurse, need to go to the bathroom, right? I mean, that's, these use cases aren't that numerous. Right. So we wrote them for Alexa. What we did is we registered with Amazon the keyword B-I-D-M-C, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. So you just try this at home, you know, Alexa, Ask BIDMC, what is my care plan for today, right? And, you know, you, oh, your doctor will see you at 4 o'clock. And, and so it works really well. And really, it's one of the things I mentioned earlier today. The only challenge is at the moment we developed these use cases, although Amazon has signed BAAs for everything we do with them, S3, Hadoop, AWS, Alexa, as of today, isn't covered under a business associate agreement. But by the end of the year, it should be. So you can start to get to other more interesting uh, applications. One of the things we're starting work on is sentiment analysis. Because sort of interesting question, if you were to ask a patient, what's their pain score? And they say, ah, my pain score is a 10 out of 10. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Especially, my pain score is a 10 out of 10. Right? right. So that is going to be another valuable data point. Yeah, Amar. Yeah, so I think, um, uh, of all this technology you mentioned, we're talking about voice and other things, I, the sort of idea of being in home and using IoT and wearable devices, uh, we, have, we have an exciting project going on with Pfizer where we're in, in the area of Parkinson's disease, are doing in-home monitoring and looking at how well patients are doing at home. This uh, you know, uh, helps to sort of look, make the trial go faster. They don't have to go to their clinician and get their standardized scores. We can see on a daily basis whether the drugs are, that they're taking are helping them or not and shorten the time for the trial. So there, many of these technologies can actually speed up the trial and bring us more data than we would have normally have had. Uh, but I also want to flip this question. I saw the question, but I also want to flip that we need clinical trials of all these things like IoT and AI rather than just assuming that these things are actually working. We need them in a way that creates evidence for healthcare providers that they can trust these technologies. There's so much hype out there and so many really poorly designed studies with lots of biases built at them that we need the opposite of trials with blockchain to secure these models and IoT devices to ensure the quality of the data is coming out of these devices helps us run the trials. And I couldn't agree more because I have hundreds of patients using IoT in the home today and understanding the provenance of what device is there, its precision and accuracy, it's all very important. And I'll give you one other weird use case which blockchain won't solve. But there's this conference for IT every year called HIMS. you know, 60,000 of my closest friends. Well, HIMS this year decided to instrument 10 people and then reward whoever walked the most at HIMS with a $10,000 donation to the charity of their choice. Well, you may know I'm a farmer, runner, climber, and all the rest. Well, I walk 61,000 steps at Hims. I was in last place. <laughs> and I guarantee you, guarantee you, the winner took a Black & Decker drill, put a Fitbit on it, and ran it for half an hour. And there's no way you were walking 125,000 steps a day, buddy. Right. <laughs> right. I, mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. Like, you know, also, what Arun said was, 
uh, you know, poorly designed studies. Like technology, if you throw technology at a poorly designed study, it's not going to get any better. Mm -hmm. But there are possibilities where, where you know, you can, we talked about, I think the previous uh, talk was talking about, we can do, we want to do AI but need data. So using the data that's already tapped into the clinical trials, the study participants and then the type of the drug, there are possibilities where we can leverage artificial intelligence to you know, better uh, design the trial mm -hmm. that fits the criteria of the patients. So one of the biggest challenges for, is patient recruitment. And once the patient is recruited, you know, they get dropped out because they develop adverse events. So by, by us actually mining the data, you can actually eliminate some of the possible patients that can have high likelihood of developing adverse events and eliminate that so that you know, your, your trial is run efficiently. That's one of the thought process that I have. We haven't tested it out, mm -hmm. but the proof is in the pudding. I agree. Yeah, we, um, we looked at, uh, so if you look at uh, the, the life expectancy of a participant being 90 years old, so we are only able to capture 30 years. That's between 30 and 60, and even there it's a bell curve. So we lose the first 30 years, nobody is interested because before 30 you were immortal. And then, uh, so after 60 to 90, we also lose that. So we found a way to actually take these 60 years, and then we, we also tried it out on the others and it really works well it's pictures and uh, so we in AI we are actually the best now in computer vision you know like that's it's better than voice it's better than text so what do we do you well you take your medications you take a picture you take a picture of yourself you, you take pictures and all these pictures gather this this data and then you can actually expand from 30 to 90 years in your patient recruitment Let's talk about what's missing. So both, all of you have given examples of uh, Internet of Things and tools and get gathering of that data. But when you think of digitization and meeting expectations of stakeholders, regulatory, patients, physicians, what's missing? A Boston-based hospital last week, I won't mention which one, wasn't mine, um, Harvard announced that there was fraud in 31 scientific papers, and they involved stem cells. And what was clear is that the notebooks were modified, the clinical trial data was falsified, and these were collaborative papers. So the question is, is what tools and technology can ensure notebooks have data integrity and in a collaborative study, the data is not modified? And certainly a regulatory is, is a, like for instance, you know, there is like this, uh, there is a, uh, a, an ethical tariff. I don't know if there is actually a real tariff, but you cannot pay patients to participants too much. So why, why not? Yeah. So why can you only pay a participant $50 and a CRO can, can charge up to $30,000 for a recruitment of, 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 a, of a patient? Why is that? Why is it unethical to pay people who are mostly poor more than $50? I, I, I don't get that. So, I, mean, and, yeah, I agree. These are some rules that, you know, I mean, for example, even the patient privacy rules, right? Like yeah. the pharmaceutical company, we cannot, cannot have the details of the patients. Yeah. But if the patients are willing to share the data, yeah. there should be no reason why we cannot see that. Yeah. So, we, even in a blockchain, 
like you know, once we have, we have to also have some controls as to say we cannot see the patient's private details. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, what what is yeah. certainly missing is a bank. You know, where people just, because people want their data, and it is their data, it's actually generated from their body. So, you know, I, I don't know what argument you could do uh, that it is not theirs, but anyway. So, it's their data. So, when you give it to them, it's like money. You will, they will take it to a bank, and they will want that money to bring in dividends. So, if you couple that with an exchange, so what we are doing now, and we're still in a, you know, talking about the, with the SEC with that, but a sort of molecular NASDAQ where you can look into the hashes of, the, of their DNA or, you know, when we hash it, when we encrypt it, look on the exclusion criteria without actually looking at the data because, you know, the, the hashes, you know, are very short uh, uh, segments. And uh, people could even make a monthly salary. And there would be enough participants, enough clinical trials, enough interventional observational trials. So I don't see somebody has to like talk some common sense in Washington DC, I think. This is an important threat. So my father died five years ago. He had multiple sclerosis for 23 years and was on every drug that has been bioengineered in the last two decades. And he said, I want to share the personal details of my experiences with every one of these pharmaceuticals with the manufacturer so they have that post-market surveillance. But there is no straightforward way to do that. And so as you point out, can regulatory change occur so that a provider, me, gives the patient their data and then the patient shares it as they will, but there's integrity guarantees so we know it's not modified, right. uh, falsified so that it's useless to you. So, yeah, going to that point, like, you know, you know, all of us probably here at a certain level familiar with blockchain. Data prominence and data, data prominence and data integrity are the key tenets of clinical uh, trials. So the data has to, you have to prove the prominence of the data and the integrity has to be maintained, like John was saying. So if you take the blockchain immutability factor, blockchain as a platform, again, we gotta be careful as to like, you know, what we're putting on blockchain, what we're not putting on blockchain, and we leave it to the highly paid experts in the room, um, sitting next to, I think, uh, I'm pointing to Emblema, the highly paid experts in the room. Uh, <laughs> under the spotlight. Uh, yeah, under the spotlight. Uh, to decide you know, what data and what, what not data. But like, I think blockchain as a platform has great capabilities to kind of you know, prove the provenance of the data and the integrity of the data all the way, as you, like you said, it's not falsified and you can actually show to the FDA the tables, lists, and figures that are submitted in the clinical summary report that go to the FDA. If they say, show me you know, Basker's data all the way from the, the electronic data capture, you can actually trace it back. So I just, I just want to add, I think the, it really surprised me that we're still designing clinical trials using 20th century technology. There's no way for us to compare trial to trial because we don't know what happened in the trial. Right. It's, it's stuck in some document, some protocol. It might have some requirements on clinicaltrials.gov, but you have no idea what happened in the trial. And that just disappears in the ether after the trial is done, unless you go back and mine these documents. We need to get back in front of the whole trial development process by encoding all that knowledge. Otherwise, all this data can come to us and we'll just not have any way to compare it. Another thing that is really uh, missing is, is a technological uh, version of the IRB. Because, God's sake, 
it's like the you know bureaucracy to talk to other bureaucracies you know like uh, so that could be a, just a smart contract and the, the it would be very easy right so we are using the Stanford IRB now so which is probably one of the things where I will earn my heaven <laughs> it's so it's so full of bureaucracy so in wrapping up the last question for the for the panel is the combination of everything we've talked to today and what's missing through learning through data-driven decision models what are we ultimately looking to solve with all of this technology so in, uh, I'll I start with Max. Yeah, before before I answer, I know I think there has to be what what IEEE started was you know I had a vision with IEEE as a um, neutral platform to bring the companies together, like the startups, the technology companies, and then the universities, and then the academia, and also the pharmaceutical companies, not just the Bayer doing it alone, Pfizer's, GSK, and the Novartis of the world, because there is no. Um, intellectual property in actually having a platform and having a common design and you know the way you design clinical trials. You're the protocol and then the drug that you provide to the patients is where your intellectual property or your unique selling proposition lies. So all of us have to come together and agree on some kind of a core standards to, to make it more efficient because you're talking about this is a big cash cow and an average clinical trial, companies spend about 30 to $60 million and just one clinical trial. And then just count, count it by the number of clinical trials that we do by an year, and then you do the math. This is a billion dollar industry, which is, you know, there's a opportunities to, for us to benefit. I think it's also time that we um, are throwing out that Hippocratic Oath. Because, uh, so what people uh, only remember of the Hippocratic Oath is do no evil, do no harm. No, do no. But that's not it. The main thing of the Hippocratic Oath is keep it secret from the patients because, you know, these people, they can't bear that, uh, the, the burden of their mortality, you know. So we have to take that out and uh, start the education of the patients so that a new dialogue with their doctors can, can happen. And also throw all these medical records right. out also. <laughs> I, I problem myself. So my wife was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer in December of 2011. She's Korean, was 50 at the time. And the biomarkers were her two negative, progesterone, estrogen positive. So a question, of course, to be asked is, how have Korean women age 50 with these biomarkers done on Taxol, adriamycin, right. you know, and the answer is there's never been a clinical trial but there's data, yeah. and can't there be a reflection on maybe it's not perfect, but it's a whole lot better than nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's also in the education towards the patients, I think the most important thing is that, that we, we basically have to be honest that the whole of me medicine is a research project and there are only probabilities and the doctors guesses and we gamble and we have to make the choices together with the doctors. I think that that should be, you know, and then we can bury the Hippocratic Oath, you know, like, okay, let's bring it into the open, you know, like. We are out of time, let's take a question. Yes, sir. Maybe I'm making this too simplistic, but if I have to take a CRM and blockchain enable it, and every time any data gets into the CRM, you take a half of the data, you don't blockchain. Not too expensive to use a public Ethereum blockchain to do that. They're doing that today when a user of our app downloads data from an EHR using Fire or whatever. And then you know, essentially you do a dash of that on blockchain. Why? Because if they want to sell that data for research or whatever, you know, we can guarantee that it wasn't tempered with. The same thing would be done to CRF, I'm assuming, as long as CRF is electronic. 
Yeah, the, the problem is not technological. The problem is that since the open source movement and Linux, this is a big emancipation movement that we are going through and we are learning as a civilization also to play non-zero sum games, you know, sharing stuff and, right. and everyone is afraid that the ideals will actually, you know, kill the companies. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, we're just experimenting with that new emancipation. But uh, without openness, nothing will ever change. I, I just want to add, I think, yeah. <laughs> from my perspective, blockchain is the most successful when it removes the middleman, which is the friction in our society, which is the people looking at transactions. If you look at how clinical trials are run right now, the people who generate the CRFs are usually the CROs who are invested in sort of being in that place. A lot of the functionality of the CRO could be resolved by just putting a blockchain in, right? So that's, that's, we need to restructure how our clinical trials are run to be more efficient, to be able to allow the technology solution that you're talking about to happen. But that particular business case that you talked about, taking the CRF and putting the hash of the CRF on the, on the blockchain, companies are working on it, but the thing is, if you're talking about like a big companies, you know, an idea having, AstraZeneca is very active on that idea. You know, they shared with us uh, as a part of the IMI consortium. And for everybody to kind of you know, act on it, it will take some time, but that's the business case that he proposes is a very valid one. Great. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.